We're on week four of Advent. This is the last Sunday of Advent. And on Christmas Eve, we will come to light the Christ candle as a symbol of Jesus coming into the world. And a reminder, of course, that he will come again. Micah 5, 2 to 5. This is the fourth of various minor prophets we've looked at over Advent the last one that we'll do, since this is the fourth Sunday. And as I was thinking about this passage, especially thinking about Bethlehem, the littleness of Bethlehem, you've probably heard me mention many different times how much I enjoy C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. They are probably my favorite authors. And I was thinking again about how this passage speaks to a gospel theme that Tolkien incorporates in The Lord of the Rings, that the small deeds of ordinary people can change the course of history. And in Lord of the Rings, the ordinary hobbits, small of stature, seemingly unimportant in the big scheme of things, become the central heroes, not because of their great intelligence or because of their great leadership, but for their simple, earthy courage and love and friendship. And again, this is a deeply Christian idea that God uses the small and the insignificant to bring about his glory, to advance his kingdom. It's the same idea that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 when he's talking about the body of Christ, that even the small, uh, seemingly insignificant person in the body of Christ has a role to play. Everybody in the Christian community, in the church, matters And so even though you might just be a small toe compared to the hand, so to speak, you have an important role to play. Each is distinct and unique, and we want to honor and value each person for who they are because they matter. Even the smallest person and the smallest places can bring about God's redemptive work. And that theme rings true in this passage from Micah this morning talking about Bethlehem. Look at verse 2. You, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. Bethlehem's just this little out-of-the-way place, a seemingly insignificant place, a small place. And Micah is a seemingly insignificant person, too. Micah's a common name, and like O Little Town of Bethlehem that we sing, Micah himself comes from a, a small town in southwest Judah called Moresheth. And so it's pretty easy to imagine that as Micah, the little guy from little nowhere, is giving a prophetic word about little Bethlehem that likely would have resonated in his heart as a person who's not from anywhere too special. And all of this, that gospel theme that Tolkien uses and the prophecy of Micah point to this gospel truth, this common biblical idea that when God is about to do something great, the seeming human importance of status or influence that we seem to care so much about are completely irrelevant. In fact, God deliberately chooses someone whom we would often dismiss to bring about his glory and to carry out his purposes. Like David becoming king, where the prophet Samuel doesn't even think he should qualify either 
Or we might see it in Frodo and Sam in their mission to destroy the ring. Or here again with Micah from the backwoods of nowhere with little town of Bethlehem. Seemingly insignificant places by a human estimation, but now taken by God and made central in his redemptive purposes. Micah's oracles, the rest of the book, like a lot of the prophets we've looked at, have sort of those harsh judgments against sin, but also those visions of hope that's, that the prophets often do, right? They've got kind of this dual purpose. And so Micah warns about the looming threat of, of the nations around them, and he calls people to repentance, and he, he calls for the better treatment of the poor. And like Zephaniah, uh, last week we talked about that shift in the passage from judgment to hope. You get a similar thing here. We've had, there's passages uh, leading up in Micah about judgment and uh, God dealing with the nations. And then you get this shift in this passage this morning, Micah 5, 2 to 5, into God's salvation. And God's salvation coming from an unexpected place, place of little power, little influence. And this is the place God will use for his purposes. And the text itself points to the lowly origin of Bethlehem, right in verse 2, doesn't it? You who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. Ralph Smith, in his uh, NIV application commentary, says that Bethlehem is the smallest and most insignificant clan in Judah. And not only that, but the word that's used to describe the smallness of Bethlehem isn't your usual word for small or little. It's almost this word to really accentuate how insignificant and diminutive and trite it is. Just this trifling, insignificant little place. And yet, this is the place that God will bring about his Messiah, his son. And of course, that's exactly the point. Even the smallest people and the smallest of places are used by God in his redemptive work. Of course, Jesus being from Bethlehem is actually fairly significant because Bethlehem is a compound word that means house of bread. And that's really fitting for Jesus as the Savior, not just because it's David's hometown, which is significant enough, but it starts to foreshadow events in Jesus' own life, that the one from the house of bread is the one who will give bread to the hungry, who will feed the 5,000 in the wilderness, who will be remembered and celebrated through the breaking of bread at the table. He'll be the leader who actually cares for people so much that he will lay down his life for his enemies, including you and me. And so from that smallest of clans, little Bethlehem, comes a true ruler, a true king, who's going to be greater than all the kings that Israel's seen before and greater than any military or political leader that we've seen since. This is the king that lays down his life for us. And look at how how he's described in verse 4, that he's shepherding his flock. The one who will come from little old Bethlehem is a shepherd. He'll stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And that's not uncommon. Often Israel would describe its kings and its rulers uh, as shepherds. So that's sort of a motif of understanding kingly leadership for Israel is they're supposed to be shepherding in some way. And that idea has sort of this metaphor of being a strong leader, of caring well for the sheep. And and if you think of verse 4, 
that he, the, the, the shepherd king who's to come is to lead the people to dwell securely, to live in peace. But of course, Jesus does that on a greater level than just sort of a national peace, doesn't he? Because in Jesus, we get the one who can shepherd even our very souls into an abiding peace with God, who can take the brokenness and the sin in our lives and through his forgiveness and his redemption, bring healing and hope and restoration. All of us long for shalom, for peace, for that sense of flourishing and thriving in our lives. And Jesus is the one who brings that shalom as the good shepherd. And you can know that shalom by following the one who is the good shepherd, the one who calls us into security, the one who is our peace, verse 5a says. As I was thinking about being a good shepherd, I found this out, that the origin of the word good in the phrase good shepherd, uh, obviously good is not too far removed from the word God, right? I mean, you just kind of look at it, you go, yeah. You may not really think about it. But apparently, as Germanic people were beginning to worship the God of the Bible, they needed a word to describe him. And they had lots of, lots of names for sort of the pantheon of, of Germanic gods. But they didn't have a word that would fit with the, with the God being described in the Old and New Testaments, the, you know, the God that's revealed in Jesus. And so as they started to learn about the God of Scripture and God's character, they took a form of the word good, and made it their word for God. And of course, even in not just uh, older languages, but even in English today, our word good and word God are very closely connected etymologically, right? And so there you go. To be a group of people who come to believe in God, the best way to describe them ideally is that they are people who are good, people who reflect God's character and who follow the good shepherd the godly, godly shepherd, the good shepherd. That's the one we're to follow. So as we think about how Jesus fulfills this, think about Micah and the littleness of Bethlehem. I wanted to just ask this morning, what aspect of this passage is important for you, your relationships and your life and your, your thoughts and your emotions as you head towards Christmas proper a week from now? Three things I want to draw our attention to. And the first I've already mentioned is to remember that God uses the small and insignificant to advance his kingdom. To be used by God is not always to become great and mighty. It isn't about your platform or your social media followers or your level of influence, but rather like John the Baptist to follow Jesus, we say, I must decrease, he must increase. We set aside ourselves to point to the one we follow. And so in your own life, there can be a tendency, a temptation to want to seek status or to seek glory or to seek fame or to seek the approval of others. But when we reflect on God and his character, we realize God is not so much interested in our evaluations of people and the metrics of success that we use. God is interested even in the smallest and seemingly insignificant person. And as he uses you and calls you into life with him, as he weaves you into the story he's telling, we can find identity and meaning and hope, not because of 
great success or our accomplishments or who we know, but we find our identity in who we are in Jesus. It's okay to be seemingly small and insignificant because God sees you. And here we are in Dryden, a very similar sort of backwoods, middle-of-nowhere place like Bethlehem. Did you know God is still at work here? Even though it may not be a seemingly significant place, and there may not be a lot of sort of glory attached to being from Dryden, that's okay, because God is at work even in the small and insignificant from the seemingly backwoods place, and he is bringing about his redemption. The second thing, of course, is that Jesus is born in a little place like Bethlehem, and it's worth remembering that that reflects God's own humility and his own compassion for humanity. He's not born in a big palace. He's born in a little stable. He identifies with the poor and the vulnerable. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says in the Christian story, God comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, down further still into the womb. But he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world with him. One might think of a diver first reducing himself to just his swim, swim trunks, as it were, and then glancing around and then gone with a splash, vanished, rushing down through green and warm water and then into the black and cold water, down through the increasing pressure into the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay, and then up again back to color and light, his lungs almost bursting, till suddenly he breaks surface again, holding in his hand the dripping precious thing that he went down to recover. God has come down to recover and to rescue you. And you are that precious thing that he has brought forward with life and hope to celebrate that he's rescued even you. God comes down that we may come up and bring the whole ruined world with him. And the last thing is that we get to follow the one who's called the good shepherd. And again, rather than calling attention to our own fame or prestige, it's worth having that attitude like John the Baptist, where we simply point to the one we love. We become like signposts to the good shepherd we follow. I'm always uncomfortable when someone names a a charity or a ministry after themselves. You know, like if I, was, if I suddenly made a Nicholas Amodio Ministries, right? Nicholas Amodio doesn't have a ministry. Nicholas Amodio participates in the ministry of Jesus. But Christ has the ministry. And all of us, whether you're a little toe or not, whatever part you play in the body of Christ, even the small or insignificant, right, are called to join in and participate in the ministry of Jesus because we're ensconced in Christ we're in him. It's not about me and my fame. It's about joining in in the ways God has gifted each of us individually to be part of what he's doing in his world. And so today as we come to the table, we put our faith and hope in the one who was born in Bethlehem, the town of little account, so that we might rise with him to follow the good and faithful shepherd, the humble king. And this morning, you might feel small. 
you might feel your life is seemingly insignificant. You might feel like you're not that special. But in God's kingdom, it's the weak and the poor who are blessed and who are lifted up. Even the smallest person and the smallest of places can be used by God in his redemptive work. And Jesus invites all of us to join him in that glorious work today. Amen? Let's pray as we head to the table. Lord, we thank you for this morning that you are here and that you are at work in our lives. And that while we may feel poor or insignificant, you don't see us that way. You see us as part of your body. And you call us to participate in your kingdom, in your ministry, in the work you're doing here. And Lord, we pray that you would give us a clear vision as a church of what you are calling us to do at this time and in this season. Lord, we pray for those this morning that may feel small and insignificant, that you would remind them that you identify with the small and the insignificant. You're the king born in the stable after all. And as we follow you, our good shepherd, you call us into that place of shalom and peace and life. And we thank you, God, that in you is forgiveness of sins and life everlasting, that you hold us. You call us to yourself. Lord, as we come to this table this morning, we pray that you would remind us uh, that you do love us, that through your death and resurrection we can find life and hope for today, that we can follow you and know the plan and purpose you have for us. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen.